On the programme, Anthony Cronin on poetry, politics and the modern world. Anthony Cronin has been at the heart of Irish literary, cultural and intellectual life for over half a century. One of the outstanding figures of Irish letters and engaged artistic life, he's a writer and biographer of distinction, was central to the setting up of Estona and played an important role in subsequent state policy towards the arts. His book, Dead as Doornails, is a unique, unforgettable account of interlinked literary lives in the Dublin of the 1950s and 60s, and indeed, much further afield than Dublin. Anthony Cronin's centre may well be Dublin and this country, but his outlook has always been open and international. Derek Mahan has described him as one of our finest and most dedicated poets, and he has always promoted the cause of poets and poetry. His own work is marked by a kind of obstinate, understated strength, a sureness of form containing deep flashes of illumination and beauty, and a quizzical eye alert to the sometimes absurd qualities of life. A short excerpt from his long poem, The End of the Modern World, features in the anthology If Ever You Go. And that poem is also the focus of an essay by the late Professor Robert Welsh in his book, The Cold of a May Day Monday, which has just been published. I've been speaking to Anthony Cronin about poetry, writing, the arts and politics. He begins by reading from The End of the Modern World. There was supposed to be a Stella Garden sequence to put Yeats and his tower in their place. For after all, a visitor I had opined our little quarter had been built for the aristocracy of labour. Dockers, violent and bitter men, perhaps, when drinking. The master bedroom measured twelve by six. The other, square but smaller, had no window since someone built the kitchen up against it. The loo was out of doors. I don't complain. In fact, the Stella poems, like extensions, projected, never started, for the want of money, time and energy, were meant to celebrate, as he did, rootedness. Or anyway, a roofing. 51 Stella Gardens, Dublin, was the first house that I ever owned, almost the first object of any kind except for books and once a car. Although I was a bit past what old Dante called the middle of the path which is our life, I'm past it still. So here I settled down in 72 with wife and children, Isolde 17 and Sarah almost eight. I managed two and sometimes up to four effusions weekly facing the bedroom wall, my papers strewn behind me on the bed. There were no stairs or battlements to pace upon in Stella. And yet I was embattled in the way that most of those who are embattled are in our society. I feared the post, the admonition from the EBS, which threatened to uproot me every month, the ESB, which threatened instant darkness, the GPO, which threatened severance. Yeats said, describing some half-mounted gent 
a man so hurried that he seemed to be not one but all mankind's epitome. Well, even a freelancer's situation, though scarcely known to sociologists, can still be seen in terms of common struggle, or so at least I, right or wrong, determined. I joined the NUJ, I wrote long pieces about the need of state support for artists, tried to define an order in which art might find itself the breadth of common being. Some well-known ghosts appeared reproachfully. That's phony, all that politics and stuff. It wasn't, but I felt a traitor to the long tradition of the man alone, deriding all sides, driven out by all, to feast on his own heart in scorn and joy. The central one, in Europe anyway, since Baudelaire surveyed the damned in Paris, and one which part of me would still respond to as to no other myth of sanctity. Our guest, Anthony Cronin, there reading four sections from his 1989 sequence of poems, The End of the Modern World. Two of those sections included in the anthology, If Ever You Go, and The End of the Modern World, dedicated to Dermot Bulger. Anthony Cronin, tell me a little more about that, I suppose one can say, epic poem. Uh, We heard four of the 179 sections of it. Vast in its range and achieved ambition. Um, it must be one of the longest sequences by an Irish poet. What inspired it? Um, it's a sort of psychic history of Europe since the Middle Ages. Um, and like a lot of other works which can be described in that kind of terminology, it's basically autobiographical as well. In other words, a lot of my own personal psychic history in it. I think this is true of all writing. You know, even Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire is probably quite autobiographical if we were looking at it in the right way. Uh, which uh, is, it makes, it it gives a a sort of double charge to a certain kind of good writing. You are writing a history, and you are writing, you're writing history or philosophy or whatever, but you are writing personally as well. And, uh, of course, the tension set up between the two and a kind of uh, double, hopefully, a double charge that it's drawing from both sources. This is probably a little bit more uh, traceable or noticeable in, say, the novel than it is in poetry. I mean, it's much easier 
to see the operation of a a double thing at work in Ulysses, say, than it would be in Paradise Lost. But I'm sure it's there in Paradise Lost as well. In fact, there is a small section about Paradise Lost in the end of the modern world, and I think it sounds quite autobiographical. <laughs> um, we, we'll talk later about your own prose writing and and novel writing, indeed, and and that balance between uh, writing poetry and 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 writing prose, because I I think you're one of the people who has really managed to achieve the balance. But going back, um, you know, poetry has been at the heart of your life for more than six decades, and. You know, you've known a great many of the Irish poets over that time and made a great contribution to the, the body and cause of, of Irish poetry in this country. But when you look back, um, when do you think you became conscious of poetry as a force in life and a particularly significant force and presence in your own life? Well, I, I began by finding it simply a great pleasure I think everybody does that. And uh, it was only later that I realised quite how fundamental and all-embracing and capable of uh, containing and judging all human activity it is. Uh, this makes the decline of poetry as an art form, and I think it has declined. I don't mean that the the poems of quality are of less quality than the poems of quality 30, 40 years ago, but I think there is a general decline in the way poetry is regarded and in the way it is received. Uh, it is no longer the case that it's in the forefront of uh, the arts. Other arts uh, have far more, leaving out popular appeal and simple popular appeal. I think it is true to say that people do find more sustenance in other arts nowadays than they do in poetry. And this is a great pity. Uh, because, uh, for one thing, we all use words and we all try to make words embrace this and embrace that. And poetry shows us how. So a decline in poetry status and popularity affects everything, anything that affects our ability to express ourselves with exactitude, with clarity, with feeling, uh, all at once, uh, triggers a decline in, in the possibilities of civilization, really. When, I mean, did, when did you begin to write your first poems? Oh, I was quite young. I mean, I would say about 13 or so. <laughs> and what were, they, what were they like? 
although they're terrible. I mean, they were worse. They were beyond that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I remember. I don't remember really many phrases, but I remember rhymes. I remember seas being rhymed with Hebrides <laughs> and that sort of thing. And uh, I know they're they're not worthy of dwelling on. I think I first began to write poems that meant something, something to me and hopefully to others in my early 20s. Uh, and not before that, though I had been writing verse for a long time by then. And uh, I saw the difference straight away. I mean, I could identify in the collected poems the first real poem that's there. Uh, and uh, the difference, it's strange, the difference uh, surprised and, and delighted me. I could see that this was doing something and it was uh, poetry begins for me with a feeling of something being unresolved uh, possibly even in the subconscious uh, where so many things are unresolved but it's to achieve a, a sort of resolution of this ill-defined problem. Uh, and that's what hopefully it does. It doesn't achieve a solution, but a resolution, yes. <laughs> I remember you saying to me recently that you don't read poems late at night because you're afraid they might keep you awake. Well, that's the, true. The excitement of reading a poem. They and would. I think that's a wonderful idea. Yeah, they would. Um, I used to, foolishly, uh, but they, they do excite me too much. Good poems, or even uh, long, longish, uh, fair dwindling poems. I think when you get into length, real length, there has to be a less tension, less uh, fireworks, because, uh, well, simply because the reader must go on. And he, he must go on taking things, or she must go on taking things in his or her stride. And if uh, there are passages of too much beauty or excitement or discovery, uh, then it upsets the apple cart. You should be able to read a long poem or a long sequence, something as you read a novel, in something the same way. It doesn't overthrow you at any point. So, uh, or it shouldn't. 
Would you read another of your own poems for us? And it's one that I'm particularly fond of, um, poem which accompanied the planting of, of a tree of liberty on Vinegar Hill. Uh, this goes back to 1989. And can I just say it was commissioned? Um, there was a tree of liberty. It was planted on Vinegar Hill by uh, the French ambassador. There was a fly pass by the Irish Air Force. It was all a wonderful occasion. And... Uh, the committee in charge asked me to write a poem and to read it on Vinegar Hill. There is another... They asked... Well, it was somewhat different committee. Asked again in 1798, and I love writing to order like that. I think it's the thing that poetry used to do, and it's evidence of its decline that it's no longer asked do it. It should accompany occasions like that. And uh, I loved the occasion and I loved the idea of a tree of liberty on Vinegar Hill. Poem which accompanied the planting of a tree of liberty on Vinegar Hill on the 14th of July 1989. Far from the eaves and spires of brilliant Paris, unpinioned now, part eagle and part dove, in strengthening circles soared the miraculous bird. And everywhere the people raised their eyes to widening skies where soon the bird might be. Those bowed and bent in labour watched for its shadow on the waving corn, spoke in the patois of the poor of hopes cherished, unrealised through mastered ages, but fiercely lived through now in every parish. Over the bright May meadows soared the bird, high in the Wexford sky, the baronies of Forth and Bargy Shelburne, Shelmalir, saw it enhaloed for a moment, lost it in all the welter of hot history's day, the dire confusions of the actual. On Vinegar Hill, above the pleasant Slaney, a tree is planted now, to which the bird dove-like descends. O bird of freedom, rest forever, on our hills, our parishes. Let liberty, for which all pay such price, be native to our fields as those of France, and all the lands where men and women wait an end of servitude, see brightening skies, see circles widen where the bird may come, for whom our world is insufficient home. Anthony Cronin reading poem which accompanied the planting of a tree of liberty on Vinegar Hill the 14th of July 1989. Um, was Dublin a very poetic city when you first came to live here? Uh, you know, I suppose we look back now and we think of McDade's and Patrick Kavanagh and I suppose things can almost blur into a, a romantic cliche perhaps but did the reality match any of that? 
No, the reality didn't match it. There was more picturesque speech, a great deal more. Media speak has practically triumphed over the speech I remember. Uh, and I'm not talking about heightened speech as sometimes, you know, Casey. I'm talking about figurative speech, uh, amusing turns of speech, which is much commoner then. In that sense, I suppose you could say it is more poetic. It was also more talk about poetry, perhaps, but only in specialist places. I mean, you didn't expect to go into any old pub and find people uh, talking away about poetry. But uh, it was uh, adverted to as a, a reality and a living thing in a very few places. And some of them were kind of underground places. I mean, there was very strong underground Samistat element about MacDades, for example, it was, as we'd say nowadays, alternative. And it was alternative to a great many things, actually, <laughs> including, you know, uh, some aspects of the morality of the day, of the outlook of the day, the... Uh, in the politics of the day, a kind of anarchism prevailed there rather than the party politics that we all love so well. Um, and in that sense, perhaps, or in those senses, but generally speaking, no, it wasn't. The population didn't greatly know or greatly care. But they were more familiar with poets. I mean, <laughs> life was lived out, you see, in public in a way that it's not so much now. Cavan uh, lived most of his life in public. I mean, most of his Dublin life was lived publicly. Uh, and there were others that did the same. So people became familiar with characters, as, as they said, uh, who were poets or writers. And that gave a kind of presence to the thing that uh, it wouldn't have had otherwise. <laughs> Unfortunately, it also gave rise to a certain desire for such people to misbehave or uh, to be quarrelsome or, or to behave in dramatic ways. <laughs> to play up the role in, yes, in a sense. Play up the um, role. Your portrait of, of Patrick Kavanagh in Dead as Doornails is somehow very moving. Um, all the awkwardness and brilliance and grace um, and clearly and you say it, a brilliant and sophisticated man and out of step, in a sense, with his own time. 
Um, and I love your picture of him in Sussex uh, and and him using that phrase that you you give us. You know, uh, mother said we'd pack it. <laughs> Tell me about that. Uh, there, there was a stud farm down the lane, and uh, one of the charge hands, I suppose you'd say, lived in a cottage at the end of the lane. And uh, he had a little boy with whom Kavanagh, as he often did with children, he held quite lengthy conversations with children. He had a great respect for their outlook on things. Um, and uh, he asked the little boy what religion they were. And the little boy said, well, we used to be Church of England, see, but we didn't get invited to the school fete. So mother said we'd pack it. <laughs> and this uh, dropping in and out of religion, that charmed Captain. He thought, he thought well, it would be a great place for people said about Catholicism <laughs> or whatever. Mother said we'd pack it. It's wonderful. Uh, I suppose England is is an often under-acknowledged place of, of sustenance and support for Irish writers. Um, and again, to quote Kavanagh, as you quote him, the dream that was London and England. Um, and it was interesting in President Higgins's recent state visit to England, he, he, in visiting Coventry, he referenced, you know, John Hewitt and Philip Larkin um, living there. And it's fascinating to be reminded of, of these linked landscapes and um, and to see England as this place of of possibility and a kind of refuge and I wonder was it at a certain point exactly that for you? Well yes it was a place of escape uh, and it was also to some extent a place of redress Irish judgments changed or were different. And Kavanagh felt that very acutely. Uh, Some statesmen, rather, is said uh, to have called the new world into existence to redress the balance of the old. I think it was Palmerston. Um, And uh, Kavanagh certainly looked on London not entirely Accurately, but uh, nevertheless, he looked on London as a place where uh, his reputation and the balance of reputation here would be altered. And uh, he exaggerated that to himself, of course, that process. But nonetheless, there was an element of truth in it. I mean, in a way... He wasn't better known in England, but he was certainly more respected in certain circles. They weren't as uh, as convinced as the Irish were by the sort of uh, uh, bogman image that it proved almost impossible to detach from him here. I mean, no use saying how sophisticated he was and how literate and that. People didn't want to believe that. That was not the character they had invented for themselves. 
And do you think that they, that in general, people didn't want to see that image shattered in any way? They didn't. No. Yes. No. Um, I quote somewhere um, as a sort of definition of uh, an aspect of its character what uh, Samuel Johnson said about uh, Edmund Summerin did as Dornells, what Samuel Johnson said about Edmund Burke. He said that if you were to take shelter in a doorway from a drove of oxen for five minutes with Edmund Burke, you would part from him knowing you had been in the company of a man of genius. Well, that's how I felt. I don't know how many other people would. Do you miss him still? Um, No, I, I don't miss people in that sense. I mean, I'm not a, by nature uh, a mourner. I think some people are by nature mourners, but I'm not. And uh, I've uh, a lot, a lot of people have died, and if I were to miss <laughs> them all, it would be a funny world. I guess, yes, if you were to miss them all all the time, there wouldn't be much time left for for living. Um, Coming back to to your own writing and again, this balance between prose and poetry, very different disciplines um, and you somehow managed to make the different forms work in in a a balanced and and deeply impressive way. And is it hard or have you found it hard to, to marry and balance those different aspects of your creative expression? No, no. Uh, I still like to write both. I get almost equal pleasure from and satisfaction from writing either one as I do from the other. Um, And uh, I still turn with great ease from one to the other. I remember uh, a period of my life, uh, I think it was Dead as Donald's with the prose book involved, and uh, I would go on with it till I was uh, feeling tired and perhaps a bit fed up, and uh, then turn to poetry and write poetry there and then in the one sort of uh, intake of breath. And and, uh, I've always been happy to do that. I believe a change is as good as a rest. I also think that the two are much nearer to each other than people allow for. Um, It's uh, an awful lot of prose has more poetry than an inch than an awful lot of poetry. And uh, the great prose has always a considerable element. I'm not talking about poetic prose now. Poetic prose is nearly always a disaster. Prose that tries to be metaphoric, decorated in a poetic way, 
is nearly always wrong. But I'm talking about good prose simply. It has a poetry of its own. Well, not of its own in its ultimate nature. It's, it's the same thing, but it has its poetry. And, uh, I mean, uh, some prose books, some novels even, without by any means being poetic prose, contain a great deal more poetry in them than many uh, fairly ambitious poems. I'm thinking of a book like The Great Gatsby, for example, whom I think, which I think is a very, very poetic work, but isn't poetic prose. Are there other prose writers who, whose work you you turn to or return to again for a kind of sustenance? Yes, uh, there there are many. There are Joyce, of course. Uh, I think Ulysses, I don't read it uh, as regularly now as once I did, but um, I think it's probably inexhaustible. I think you could probably go on reading it for a very long time and read the same bits over again uh, and discover new things there. And that surely is a characteristic of good poetry as well, that you can read it endlessly, that it never pauses. The real, genuine Ali Daly never pauses. And uh, if, if you're not discovering... Uh, something new in the in what's called the meaning, you're you're delighting over and over again in the rhythm and in the sounds, and it, it makes it very strange that that you can you can simply there is no such thing as I've read that, <laughs> and that applies to certain prose as well as poetry. You're listening to us tonight. My guest is Anthony Cronin, poet, man of letters and pivotal figure in the arts in Ireland over many decades. This is Arts Tonight. Uh, my guest is Anthony Cronin, poet and uh, central figure in the arts in this country for many, many years. Anthony Cronin, um, could we talk a little bit about um, a man, I suppose, who was a, a great friend of yours and um, and I know a lover of poetry and especially of the poems of Yeats and that was uh, Charles Hockey. Um And um, I suppose many people, I suppose he's seen in, uh, in many different lights now in retrospect, but you see him, I think, very clearly as a man who genuinely did love the arts and loved poetry in particular. Well, poetry in particular, um, he was more ambitious about the arts and their place in Irish society than you would have thought it possible for a politician to be. Uh, And it still seems impossible for a politician to be that ambitious um, about art 
and its place in society. I mean, I would like a society which was truly informed by art and uh, in which uh, art uh, achieved in the collective consciousness of a society uh, a place uh, far greater than it has now. And I think he did too. Um, this is not a question of of sort of encouraging art as if art were something on the margins. Um, and it's not a question of uh, discussing art as if art were a, a sort of good thing to discuss. It's a question of art being the breadth and and the being of society in a way. And if you look back historically, this is what you, the way you find yourself thinking. I mean, if we look back at the Greeks, for example, it's almost entirely art that we think of. Well, art on certain political formations um, and uh, it's impossible to think of certain societies without thinking largely of their art because their art was their being. Uh, and something like that is what Charlie was ambitious for. Now, I don't want to get into defending him in other ways. There were two people that I defended in print uh, a good deal only just a few years ago. Um, Charlie Hawhey was one and a very different sort of person. Francis Stewart was another. But I made a resolution that when either died... Um, that would be the end of my defence, that it would be history that would do the defending after that. And I think that was a good resolution to make, so I don't want to get into anything else about Charlie, though things are said about him and charges are made, which, you know, one could defend him on. Are you proud of, of the work you did with him, in a sense, if, for oh, yeah. example, the, the, the establishment of, of Estona. Oh, yes, very proud. But it wasn't just Estona. There was also the Irish Museum of Modern Art. Um, there was also the Heritage Council. Uh, there was also the, the Discovery Programme for Archaeology, uh, a tremendously important subject in Ireland, which had been neglected to a large extent. Um, I mean, in spite of the efforts of many archaeologists. Um, and uh, and such things. So it wasn't just Aesana. But uh, Aesana was a, 
a noble conception, uh, and it has had a, a supremely justifiable being so far. Um, so it's present on popularity. I don't think we need worry too much. It will, it's a little fashion among journalists. Actually, if you take the sums of money involved, they are by the standards of uh, state expenditure or even arts council expenditure, trivial. Uh, and if you were to add up, this only occurred to me the other day when I was writing a biographical piece about some poet or other uh, for a feature I do in the Sunday Independent. Uh, he had been in receipt of a civil list pension, as it's called in England. And I'm sure if you were to add up all the civil list pensions in all the arts, you would find that they came to more than the totality of the sum that is accorded to artists by Aeson. But I, I remember the poet Michael Hartnett used to refer to the, the canoes from Aesthona as the poet's dole, uh, which in a sense is is, a, is one way of looking at it. But what do you say to, to critics who say that apart from anything to do with money, um, who would say that, that Aesthona is elitist and uh, and in need in need of, of a shake-up to make it in some way uh, more accountable, not financially, but simply as, as, a, as a public body, uh, an important public body that should have perhaps a stronger voice in relation to, to the arts? Well, this is a bit of a mystery. Uh, if you look back over the last few years and see the resolutions that Aesana has passed, um, they cover a very wide range of subjects um, of importance. Now, having said that, I will always insist that it is not its primary business. It is not a body that you expect to take a stance on this, that, or the other. It is an enabling mechanism for the artist to continue, uh, for artists to continue with their work, and uh, it accords them some measure of honour for their achievement. And both of those things were necessary when it started. I mean, really seriously necessary. I think one of the things, actually, that uh, it, it got tremendously good public reception when it started. Uh, and I think one of the things that brought that about, if I may say so, in all modesty, was dead as doornails. People just didn't know how these figures that they were all familiar with lived or how they had to live. And uh, it prepared the way, so to speak. How they just about survived at times. Yes. Coming back to, to your own poems, uh, another very striking 
long form sequence is RMS Titanic. And I know that uh, you've been recording some poems with Dona Lunny and I think he's making settings of, of a number, including including this. Yes, well, we've been doing two things. We we have, I mean, it's, it's really a marvellous thing for Don to have done and a marvellous thing to, to have had done. Uh, recorded my entire, uh, I don't know how to pronounce that word, oeuvre. <laughs> That'll do. <laughs> uh, so that my entire poetic works are now recorded to a certain standard. But out of the first recording of RMS Titanic uh, came the musicalized version which is a version for voices, uh, including my own. I mean, I'm not a singer, but uh, I read about half the poem and about half is sung uh, to music, which Donald has composed for it. And we've been doing it a lot here and there. And it is, I think it's great. Would you read an extract from RMS Titanic? Oh, surely. Oh, if this face concealed great pain, we might call it necessity and concede its right. But multiplied in the racing mirrors here, the eyes of money vacantly severe, the polished surfaces, the silver knives, the gorgon heads which model the good lives, Presume a reckoning from the weak, the odd, the young, to proffer to a glutton God. The face of justice does not mask its grief, but emptiness and greed and disbelief, a solemn bully's face, pretentious, grave, loathing the brotherhood that it fears to save lest money and attendance might not get their due reward, their prior claims be met. To all the decent scriveners it lied, who bit upon that coin before they died, and found it hollow, and who took the blame, bearing their own, their son's and father's shame. Anthony Cronin there reading from RMS Titanic. Um, Anthony Cronin, your, your, your use of rhyme, you know, this, uh, the formality of, of your poetry is, is very striking. And I suppose it's quite unusual in, in a sense um, these days to, to read a body of work that is um, so carefully constructed and seems to carry lightly um, a weight of uh, of poetic form, uh, as I say, you know, rhyme, this sustained rhythm. I wonder, what do you look to in, in constructing the poems? I mean, are there particular poets who have inspired and in a way instructed you over the, over the years? Um, yes, the use of rhyme and of uh, strict forms was not as rare in the 20th century as people often imagined it was. Uh, for instance, if you look through 
Alden's collected poems, which is a considerable volume of work, you'll find that uh, strict or strictish forms and rhyme schemes were the norm, really, in his way of doing things. Um, and uh, with the exception of Eliot, who became the first great, well-known modern or modernist poet, that would be true of most. Eliot uh, dispensed with rhyme and strict forms, though, as he said himself, uh, no, no, referring to ver libre, free verse, no verse is libre for the man who wants to do a good job. And he did substitute another form of rhythmic construction uh, for the strict forms that were, or stricter forms we're talking about. I think what I look to uh, is the pleasure primarily that such forms give. And uh, even in their offhandedness or trickery, there is often a great deal of pleasure. And um, I also look to a marriage of, of uh, form and substance or content, as it's called, which uh, I don't like the word content because it suggests a, a separate compartment. Uh, but there, there, even even in in it, it's uh, as I said, trickeries or or aspect of play. A great deal of art is play. A man is Homo ludens. Uh, he he plays. That is, and he plays constructively. He pretends. And uh, he 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 uses forms where an animal's play will be formless, if you like. Um, and there is a great pleasure in that kind of holiday making, really great pleasure. There's also a great pleasure in when it ascends to. Uh, I'll have to say rhetoric, though I also mean something else about rhetoric. But when it ascends to rhetoric, as in Yeats, for example, you're carried away in a special kind of way that you wouldn't be carried away if it was free verse. I mean, in a way that I, I can only say that Whitman tried and he fails to carry me away in that, that way anyway. Whereas Yeats does, he does it all the time, and it's dependent on his rhythm, his form, his uh, rhyme, uh, as much as on anything else. It's 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 a wonderful way of carrying the reader away. That sort of deep and and elegant formality. Um, you you mentioned pleasure several times, and I suppose one of the pleasures you've given us over the over the decades again has been uh, your weekly poetry choice, and you've mentioned it in, in the Sunday Independent, a, a selection of which uh, became a book. I, I assume that's a joy to do. 
It is, yes. It's a joy because you're communicating your own delight in something and also because you're imparting knowledge. And both of those things are joyous activities. You have a new book coming out later. I have. uh, Later this year, the autumn of this year, um, it's called Body and Soul, and uh, uh, well, that's what uh, some of the poems are about. Soul is the neglected side of man, of course, at the moment, mankind, uh, and uh, how, how long we can go on uh, neglecting it is a matter for concern. Uh, Marcuse, the German philosopher Herbert Marcuse, he invented the concept of one-dimensional man. And that is what I feel uh, a lot of politicians are one-dimensional. I mean... uh, if you think of, or perhaps I shouldn't say, but if you think of Ollie Rehn and Jose Manuel Barroso, um, you think of Marcuse's concept of one-dimensional man. But it would be true of a lot of our own politicians as well. Well, it often strikes me that uh, one seldom enough sees a politician at uh, a poetry reading or uh, the opening of uh, an exhibition of paintings or occasionally very, occasionally at the opening night in the Abbey, but that's a different matter. In that's it, a different matter. It has a social aspect. Um, and and but but seldom, I, I seldom enough one sees a politician present for what seems to be their own abiding pleasure. Yes. Yes, and it would be a different society. They would learn things about proportion and order and harmony which are of importance to society and of great importance to society. And they are the neglected things, but if they really cared for art and understood it a little. Um, These are the things they might learn. Proportion, harmony, order, um, the relationship of past and present. But maybe that's uh, too much to hope for. We might finish with with another poem. Uh, Perhaps the the, the title poem of, of your collection, The Fall, Let us praise their disregard for the threatened consequence. Let us praise it all. Let us praise the soft yielding to unspeakable temptation. Let us praise the fall. Let us praise their togetherness in guilt and judgment, accepting the command to go into the gloom of the murmuring jungle but hand in hand. Let us praise the shelter of the fragile loving each draws round each, though they struggle every day with the intractable, 
They both learn and teach. Let us praise their exclusion from the tuneful gardens, the new tasks, harsh and long. Let us praise the birth of a new stubbornness, and then a new song. Anthony Cronin there reading the title poem of his collection, The Fall. That book and Anthony Cronin's collected poems are published by New Island. And we look forward to Donna Lonnie's settings of some of those poems and the new collection, Body and Soul. That's it from us back next Monday night at 10. Till then, goodbye.